You know, we are in a series after Easter Sunday on how the Bible addresses the emotions that we go through, right? How the Bible addresses the emotions that we go through in this life. In the first week, we talked about fear and anxiety, anxious about the future. We established that God's promises and our reality exist. And they can be married together, and we can ask God, marry our reality of anxiety, of fear of the future, marry that with trust, trust in you. We also talked about the second week, the the guilt and the regret that we sometimes experience, right? Now, maybe you have not lived long enough, but maybe you have had some guilt in the past, right? Fear of the future, week one, guilt from the past, week two. If only I had done this. If only I had gone to a four-year school. If only I had taken that job opportunity. If only I had done that. And we, we said that our guilt cannot be pacified by just apologizing to one another if we've harmed someone else and we feel guilty about that. It's just not an I'm sorry. But we must seek forgiveness with the one from whom we first turned away from. From the one that we first rebelled against. And that's our God. And so we move on to the next emotion that we may sometimes feel, and that emotion is anger, right? Anger. And my hope this morning is to humbly attempt to equip us to have a good anger. Someone say good anger. Good anger. And we'll get into that later, right? Because I didn't know that there could be some good anger. Well, we'll get into that. But what is anger? What is anger? Where does it come from? What are the heart issues inside that emotion? And on your screen, there's a, there's a, there's, there's, there's something that says anger is the way that we react when something we think important is not the way it's supposed to be. Anger comes from a word that you can physically see if you can see, or maybe you've seen it on, in yourself, anguish, angst. Right? Have you ever seen that in someone, or maybe in, in, in you? Like you just picture yourself, you're anguished, you're, you're showing this anger in your face, and you literally seem bent out of shape, right? Bent out of shape, that's the phrase. Anger is said to be a fighting emotion. Anger is said to be the justice emotion. Something is not right, and we have to fix this right away. It may be that your spouse is not understanding you, so you feel angry because we're not getting through to one another. It may be that your kids, they're not obeying you after you tell them a few times to do a certain thing and you feel angry. It may be that kids are are in cages at the border and you feel a sense of delivering the oppressed from evil. I'm going to go drive out there to fix this. It may be that some in our culture are trying to normalize the killing of babies in the womb, so you're angry about this. Anger is an active displeasure, y'all, towards something that is important enough to care about. Whether it's your own feelings, whether it's your career, whether it's even social issues that affect the world. And at the same time, we must understand that anger is part of our makeup. 
Anger is the capacity given to us by God, our creator. Anger is the ability to express that something really matters to me. And when it is not given its importance, my reaction is going to show. Dr. David Paulison brings up this point, that in the Garden of Eden, chapter 1, 2, right, and 3 of the book of Genesis, there was already an evil lurking around that you could be angry about. Adam and Eve, they, they were men and women created by God. They, have, they should have gotten mad at the liar and the murderer that was in the garden. They should have reacted in a way that showed their displeasure towards this evil. But as is our case, oftentimes, we don't get angry at the right time and in the right way. We get angry after the fact that we've been tempted and fallen into sin. Well, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Well, it wasn't me, it was the serpent who tricked me. After we've gotten our own pleasure, now we get angry and that ends up being hard because it is the wrong time to be angry. But how does this Psalm, chapter 79, speak to our anger? How does this psalmist talk about anger? That's my boy, y'all. It's all right. He's having his time. Grunting. This psalm was written by a man named Asaph, right? A psalmist, an ancient songwriter. And it's a song describing the destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, the Babylonians, the enemy has come in and invaded, attacked the city, destroyed it. There's people who have been killed, bodies lying on the street, no one to bury them. Others have been taken prisoner. And this is the context of Psalm 79. A song of lament, a song of suffering, a song of anger, a song of hope. Anger that this has happened. Anger that there is destruction and no one can bury their dead. And when we read this song, we quickly find out that probably none of us have struggled or have gone through this kind of a tragedy, right? I mean, some of us probably have had bad things happen to us, for sure. We've been lied on. We've been mistreated. We, we, someone that's close to us has passed away, and we mourn that injustice that death brings. We lose a home. We lose a job, and we feel angry about it. And here in this psalm, everything that could go wrong goes wrong. So let's have eyes on the text. Look at verse 1 through 4. Let's, let's read that once again. Uh, let me read it for us. Oh, oh God, it says, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. Imagine that. The flesh of your faithful of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to your neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Everything that could get destroyed was destroyed. Tragedy. 
Theologian James Montgomery Boyce writes that the destruction was political. There was no one in power. There was no king. There was no counselor, no one in authority, no justice system in that day. Imagine that. The destruction was also economical. The land was destroyed. There were no crops growing. No one was buying food. No one was selling food. The destruction was also social because entire families were wiped out. No one could even bury them. The destruction was religious for there was no temple that we could go and say, what's going on? Let me taste again the bread and the juice and the wine. See, we have experienced some destruction in our lives, maybe, right? More than likely, you and I have experienced a destruction, but imagine going through a political, economical, social, and religious destruction all together at the same time. There's a lament and an anger that comes out of this text when the songwriter, look at verse 5, he says, How long, O Lord? Question mark. Will your jealousy burn like fire? Will you be angry forever? And even through this destruction, we can't overlook the fact that even if these people have gone through the worst, they're still God's people. Like if you notice verse 1, this is God's inheritance that the enemy has invaded. If you notice in verse 1, this is God's holy temple. This is God's faithful people in verse 2. Even in this destruction, there is an appeal to God that says, this is our reality, and you, God, you're in the mix. I mean, if you read the first few verses, there's you, you, you. Everything is to God. It's your city. It's your temple. It's your people. It's your, it, this is all yours. You're in the mix. I'm angry at all this that is happening. But you are here. This is yours, God. So the question is, do you have confidence to say that right there? Can you genuinely say, God, this is my reality. I'm angry about it, but you're involved in here, God. Can you say, God, I, I can get angry at my situation, and I probably will. I'll probably be set off in a little bit, but I, I want to express this emotion with you in mind. This is your inheritance your temple, your city. You're in the mix. If anything, that should be a start for us, church. Let this be our first point today. We have confidence to say that God is in the mix with the issues that anger me. That you're not alone by yourself, right? And maybe you have to evaluate and, and say, am I alone by myself feeling angry at certain things or is God in the mix with me? Can I say, you know, this is, this is unjust, but I, I believe that you're with me. This is an unjust thing that's has happened, but I am confident that you're in the mix and you're with me through this. In times where we could get angry, we can have confidence to appeal to God and say, you, you, you're, you're in this with me, Lord. I'm about to go off because it's something I care about. It's important. But help me do it right. 
This concerns you. And this psalm speaks to our world today, right? Like if we look at our politics out of control, our bank accounts may be lacking, our jobs may not be satisfying, our social circle has some conflict in it, our religious life may be suffering because of the lack of devotion that we may have. More than likely, our destruction is not literal death, y'all, but it's destruction still. I gotta fix this. I'm angry that this has happened. And in our anger, we can ask the question in verse 5, how long, O Lord? This is the big question. How long is this injustice going to continue? It's, it's a justice question. It's a Lord Jesus come question. How long, O Lord? The people of God at this time know that God has been merciful to them before. They also know that they are sinners and they've strayed away from the way of God. And, and, and still they, they hurt and they say, how long, oh Lord? And the mess that we find ourselves in, maybe, I don't know what mess you find yourself in. You can ask the same question. How long, oh Lord? When wives can't bear children, how long, O oh Lord, is appropriate? When we lose the house or job, how long, O oh Lord, is okay? When we're attacked in our minds and in our hearts because of perceptions of others, how long, O oh Lord, until all my mind gets resolved is a question that we can ask. So church, this morning, Feel free to ask that question with all vulnerability. How long will this suffering last? And it is in this questioning that we get to verse 9 in the text, which says, help us, O God. I love verse 9 in this text. I love verse 9 in this text, right? Read it, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. Someone say atone. Atone for our sins for your name's sake. Because of the fallen world that they lived in, this tragedy, it had occurred because of the sin of the world that they were experiencing, this destruction had happened. So there had to be an atonement that had to be taken place. Reparations had to be done. Amends had to be given. A payment had to be paid. Make atone, atone for our sins, verse 9 says. And, and in your world, in your life this morning, there may be some lack or maybe some destruction that may be happening because maybe it's a past sin and you're suffering the consequences. Maybe it's just that we live in a fallen world after Genesis 3 and things just don't function well. My mind is messed up. I answer irrationally sometimes. But that's not an excuse. We have not walked in his way. We have not devoted ourselves to Jesus. So there needs to be an atonement. 
We cry out, verse 9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. May that be your prayer this morning. May that be your words coming out of your mouth. We need atonement. And there's so much in there, but I want to point out that the psalmist mentions that word atonement, right? Follow me here. You could only make atonement where? At the temple. But what had happened with the temple? It had been destroyed. There's no more temple. Who is going to make atonement? Hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ walks this earth. And the cry for atonement was realized when Jesus on that cross on that cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ, this man claiming to be God, was how God atoned for the sins of his people. Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sin and atoned for our sin by becoming the sufficient and perfect Savior. Jesus Christ made atonement with the destruction of his own body. That true and better temple. A better temple than the one in Jerusalem. And this is why in the things that we get angry at and in the things that we get angry about, we have someone that has provided an atonement for us. In the things that we get irritable about, like we just figured out where Eden has her irritable bone, right? Her little spine in the back of her, in her little back. You kind of press it a little bit, she just makes this face like, oh, don't do that. Things that make you irritated in the arguing that takes place with others, in the bitterness that we experience of past hurts that we just let fester there, in the violence that we may show with words or our body. In the passive anger that, that we hide beneath the surface. You know, that person's always smiling, but they have this passive anger because things have not turned out the way that they wished. In all of that, church, we have an atonement that has been provided for us. So before we lash out in rage, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday, before we lash out in rage, just asking the Holy Spirit to, to change us. Before we disapprove of some injustice and rant about it in rage, we can submit to the atonement that Jesus performed on the cross and say, Holy Spirit, how do I react to this injustice and unfairness? But that only happens when we trust in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And that's the gospel. Because we can believe this morning that we can still ask, how long, O Lord, while at the same time trusting that Christ has made an atonement for our sins. In everything that sets us off, we can go to verse 9, and we can say, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. We have God's glory in view, question mark. 
when we have the glory of God in our view, our anger is redirected. When we have the glory of God's name as our aim, how, how we look, how we're perceived, how we sound, pales in comparison to his glory. It is only then that we can live lives of freedom when we have his glory in mind. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody says when God's glory is in our minds. And, and that can be our second point this morning. That in our anger, have we made God's glory our aim? In, in your anger at some things in this life, have you made God's glory your aim? Have you made God's glory your aim in your anger to some injustice, whether it be personal or societal? Have you made God's glory your number one priority as you have strong feelings about things in your life or in this world that, that really matter? God's glory changes the way that, that we engage marital conflict with our spouses, right? Imagine that. Imagine next time you're arguing with your spouse and you have God's glory in mind. Lord, help us have that. In parenting, when it comes to disciplining your children, imagining if you have God's glory as your aim as you parent your child. In relational conflict with family, with coworkers, with friends, imagine if we would have God's glory in mind. In social justice issues like immigration, abortion, and so on, imagine if we had God's glory in mind. May our life, y'all, Reflect the glory of God as our number one priority. That's my hope and that's my prayer for myself. That when we do that, our anger is, is redirected since it is not about me and how right I want things to be, but it's about God and his justice and his rightness waiting for him to set it all right. So, how can we pursue good anger? How can our anger be redirected towards a good one? What are some steps that I can take, Tony? Because I understand trusting God, that's the gospel, understanding trusting God, he has provided a penalty, the, the paid penalty on the cross with his son Jesus, but what, what can I do this week? And those two things I talked about before, set the stage for us to redirect our anger, but what practical things can I do? Because it's, it's, it's possible to say, y'all, that is wrong, and yet express displeasure in a way that proves constructive. And Dr. David Paulus, and I, I go back, if, if, if you want to read this book, it's called Good and Angry. He basically coins this phrase that good anger is the constructive displeasure of mercy, right? That's what doctors do. They come up with stuff like this. So that's, that's, that's gold right there. Just look at the words. The, the constructive displeasure of mercy. This is good anger. Think about each of these words. Good anger is a mercy. 
It's, it's good coming into a bad situation. Good, good anger also is a mercy that is constructive. It intervenes into a wrong. It wants to fix something. It's not just a lashing out because things are going the way that we don't want them to go. And good anger is a displeasure that is strong and at the same time clear-minded and steady. Lord, help us have good anger. Good anger is a constructive displeasure of mercy and you can switch gears on things that make us angry and say, I, I know that this normalization of, of abortion is wrong, for instance, but how can I have a constructive displeasure of mercy towards it, right? How can I have a constructive displeasure of mercy in the argument I just had with my spouse, with my friend, with my coworker? I don't agree with this particular political view, but how can I have a constructive displeasure of mercy towards people who espouse it and embrace it? We can know something is wrong, yet we can act constructively. But it takes for us to feel and know that God is in the mix, and it takes for us to know that God has provided an atonement for our sins. So this is uh, our prayer this morning. Could we pray that God gives us patience, forgiveness, love, and constructive conflict? Those are on your screen right there. You can write them down and you can ask God for those four things. God, give me patience when I get angry. Give me forgiveness for those who are against me. Give me love for me to serve them. Give me constructive conflict. In reality, Jesus is the incarnation of patience, forgiveness, and love, right? He is the incarnation of all these three and we are not. Since we're not patient, since we're not loving, since we're not forgiving, God creates a conflict with our sins. That's the fourth one, constructive conflict. And because he shows us mercy at the cost of Jesus' life, we can return to him in repentance and faith. And the gospel shows us how. So from now on, church, would we lean into God and say, I, I want to have patience. I want to have love. I want to have forgiveness for others. And I want to have constructive conflict when injustices are coming against me or against our world. He's in the mix of our conflicts and his glory is at stake. So asking God to deal with our conflicts with us, we can say verse 13 of Psalm 79. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praises. Let's pray.